Good afternoon, everyone. Great to be here with you. Great to see the sun shining and the wind uh, not so active today, at least. In 1725, John Newton was born in London, England. Not to be confused with a few more famous Newtons, like Sir Isaac Newton, or the not-so-tasty Fig Newton, at least to my palate. John Newton, his father was a shipping magnate who'd been raised Catholic. His mother was a devout person, but independent. She wanted her son to become a clergyman. And unfortunately, she died when John was only six years old. So John was then raised by various relatives as his father was out at sea. At age 11, John went to sea with his father, where his career as one of the most disobedient, disorderly, and profane sailors who ever existed soon blossomed. After deserting the Royal Navy because of overstaying his leave, he began working on a slave ship, eventually rising to the position of captain. And on one occasion while at sea, a violent storm arose that swept a sailor overboard. And John had been standing in that exact spot just moments before. Soon he and all hands were involved in bailing water, trying to keep the ship afloat. During this frightful experience, he is said to have muttered in desperation, if this will not do, then Lord have mercy upon us. He survived the storm. And as the story goes, after that, in returning to England, John couldn't get this phrase out of his head. He soon thought that God had sent him a direct message, and he studied for the ministry and began pastoring a small church in the hamlet of Olney, which is about 60 miles north of London. His writing and delivery were somewhat unpolished, but he connected with people because of his personal stories and admissions of how difficult it was sometimes to be a Christian. His church began growing in numbers, and he decided to start writing hymns, something that was expected of pastors at the time. I'm sure many of our ministers today appreciate that that is no longer an expectation in their roles. I certainly do. So, in late 1772, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Perhaps as a, a poem uh, initially or as a hymn. And it was first used in public on January 1st, 1773. And contrary to popular belief arising from a movie, Newton did not write it in reference to the abolition of slavery. He simply wrote it for a sermon on grace in general. The lyrics are well known. The first verse says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Newton's sermon on that January day in 1773 focused on the necessity to express one's gratefulness for God's guidance 
that God is involved in the daily lives of Christians, though they may not be aware of it, and that patience for deliverance from the daily trials of life is warranted when the glories of eternity await. According to Newton, unconverted sinners were blinded by the God of this world until mercy came upon us, not only undeserved but undesired. Our hearts endeavored to shut him out till he overcame us by the power of his grace. That information I just shared with you about John Newton comes from a a Wikipedia article regarding the, the history of Amazing Grace. Now, the critics at the time didn't think much of the hymn, calling it a unashamedly middle-brow lyricist writing for a low-brow congregation. And they noted that only 21 of the words used in all six verses have more than one syllable. Apparently, the critics liked uh, big words in order to show how, uh, how righteous they were. In the next few decades, however, the hymn became very popular in the United States with a wide variety of denominations using it in their hymnals. Today, this hymn is widely known by members of God's church, even though it's never been in our hymnal. And as music sometimes does, this piece evokes a variety of emotions and perspectives. The mixed opinions within our fellowship arise because some focus on the positive message of grace, while others have negative reactions because it reminds them of former misguided beliefs and misunderstandings of grace. So what about you? What are your thoughts regarding grace? Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Look at a couple of verses here. We're going to look at verse 6 and 7 as we start today. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 6, it says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. And then verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, speaking of Christ, of course, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of of his grace. From this passage, we see several aspects of grace upon which we could focus today. Certainly include redemption, Christ's blood, and the forgiveness of sins. But the phrase that really struck me was that at the end here, that we have these things according to the riches of his grace. Incidentally, this connection between riches and grace is also used by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3. But today, let's focus on that phrase, the riches of his grace, which is also the title of my message. Now, as we start to explore this topic, always good to start with some definitions. The Greek word for grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It has a variety of meanings, including that which bestows or occasions pleasure, delight, or causes favorable regard. It is applied to beauty or gracefulness of person or speech. 
And it's also the friendly disposition from which the kindly act proceeds. Graciousness, loving kindness, goodwill, especially in reference to divine favor or grace. That comes from Vine's Expository Dictionary. Now, in the Church of God, we have often defined grace as unmerited pardon. And this is a good beginning, a foundational understanding. But as we'll see today, there's more to the subject. Now, we've defined what grace is, but perhaps we should also spend a moment and discuss what counterfeit grace is. Counterfeit grace is acceptance of Jesus' pardon for one's sins without repentance and without evidence of a changed life conform to God's commands. It is the mistaken notion that all of God's benefits, including eternal life, can simply be accepted by the recipient without any change in one's life. Counterfeit grace mistakenly calls anyone who tries to follow Christ's example of keeping the commandments a legalist. These mistaken ideas regarding grace are what members of the Church of God find repugnant. And counterfeit grace makes people feel secure in continuing a life of disobedience to God. Counterfeit grace came into much greater prominence the end of the first century AD, where in Jude 4, we see certain men turning grace into license to sin. What's the right way to understand the glory of God's grace, as we saw referenced in Ephesians 1 and verse 6? Just because many mistakenly believe grace is licensed to sin, the true grace and meaning of it from the Bible don't go away. Proper, authentic grace is glorious. The word grace is found over 170 times throughout the Bible, at least in the King James Version. That's where I got the count from. It's mentioned in almost every epistle of Paul. I'll uh, rapid fire a couple of examples to you. We won't turn to these scriptures, but in Galatians 1 verse 15, Paul says, Christ called me through his grace. At the very start of the book of 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1, He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, showing that grace comes from both the Father and the Son. And in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, Paul encouraged Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Are you personally strong on this subject? Let's turn... One more chapter here in Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians 2. We'll look at a few more verses where Paul addresses this topic here. We'll start in verse 4. And we're going to read down through verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, sin, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. You see that phrase once again, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just because, pardon me, so even though obedience to God's law is very important, we aren't saved by obedience. We see here, even if we were currently obedient in all points of the law, if we imagine this scenario, that doesn't do anything about our previous sins, which we have all committed. And speaking of sin, let's note one other passage, this time in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Towards the end of this chapter, let's note verses 7 through 9 here. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. John writes here, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. But verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all continue to sin on occasion, even after being baptized. So it's not just the former sins that we have to consider. John speaks of us sinning in the present in the ongoing sense. So obedience to the law does not solve the problem of our previous sins, doesn't solve the problem of our current sins, doesn't solve the problem of our yet-to-be-committed sins. God wants us to repent of our sins and get back to obedience after sinning as this builds righteous character but we're still left with the problem of how our sins can be forgiven. This is where grace comes in with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As we saw here in verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's go back to the Gospel of John now. We're going from 1 John back to the Gospel of John, again to chapter 1. This time, we'll look at starting in verse 14. John, chapter 1, verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking, of course, of Christ. And we beheld his glory, the glory 
as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, filled to the brim. Grace and truth personified, we might say. And then drop down to verse 16. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. This uh, wording here, grace for grace, has the modern meaning of one blessing after another. Uh, The Bible in simple English translates this verse, uh, verse 16 here. It says, we have all received one blessing after another from the fullness of his gracious love. Expositor's Bible Commentary says it means when one supply of grace is exhausted, another is available. That has a whole lot more meaning to me than just from grace to grace. It's inexhaustible grace. An incredible, incredible supply, never-ending supply of grace. Notice then verse 17, we go on here. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ Jesus, or through Jesus Christ, pardon me. Let's go now to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, chapter 2. There's a passage here starting in verse 16 that speaks as well to this topic. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. It reads, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Let's pause there for a minute in verse 16. That's a, a long verse. Paul was known for long sentences, and that's not even the start of the sentence. We broke into it. But Verse 16 here, if you think about the Pharisees at the time of Christ, they were a sect dedicated to trying to live the law as perfectly as possible. If you took the cream of the crop of the Pharisees, the most sincere Pharisees, the all-star team of Pharisees, it's saying no matter how good they kept the law, without faith in Jesus Christ, they could not be justified. It wasn't good enough. No matter how sincere they were, no matter how good they were at keeping it, they couldn't earn their way to salvation. Let's go on in verse 17. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? He asks facetiously, certainly not, right? Just because we fall short doesn't mean that Christ is condoning sin or a minister of sin. Description, not prescription, as we heard 
in the first sermon today. Verse 18, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And closing out the chapter here, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If you could get there through the law, there'd be no point to Christ's sacrifice. Christ did not die in vain. And I find it interesting, this phrasing in verse 21, about not setting aside the grace of God. And I think that's one that's significant for us today. Because given previous misunderstandings and backgrounds, teachings in other Christian churches, some can easily set aside or overlook or just not really think about the significance of God's grace. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 23 and continue reading down in this chapter a little ways through verse 28. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all know that's the truth. And just look in the mirror. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we see how important our faith is in this process. We have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be able to receive this grace and be justified through Christ's sacrifice. Notice Paul says, so if you take all that you understand this concept he's just related. Notice verse 27. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. Who can stand up and say, look how awesome I am. That's why I received Jesus' grace. It's excluded. There's no place for that. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, it's interesting. That verse 28 is one that can often be cited all by itself without reading the rest of the chapter. Say, see, the 
The deeds of the law have no bearing whatsoever on your salvation, on being saved. But just in case anybody might leap to that conclusion, notice how Paul ends the chapter in verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? No, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. We see here clearly Paul's intent was not to say, and therefore the law doesn't matter at all. Do whatever you please. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter five. And we'll start in verse six. And I'm in the book of Romans, which is not first Corinthians. Give me just a moment. Here we go. These are some verses we often read around this time leading up to Passover and the days of unleavened bread, thinking about the mentality that we should have coming into this season and the symbolism of it. Notice 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, your glorying is not good. Not here to look righteous, show off before others, goes, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Verse 7, therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Verse 8, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. God's grace, the sacrifice of Jesus, is supposed to be the catalyst for our spiritual growth. God's Spirit dwelling in us will change the way we think. We're to replace malicious and wicked thoughts with sincerity and truth. A good mental picture for us to consider as we come up and keep the days of unleavened bread is that as we eat unleavened bread, we can think about that as putting Christ in to our lives and forcing sin out. It's essentially a physical symbol of the process of repentance. And something, of course, God doesn't call on us to only repent during the days of unleavened bread, right? But they are a physical symbol of a process we should be following every day throughout the year. And I'm sure we'll hear more about this process in the weeks to come leading up to the Passover. Of course, one other thing I'd like to point out, it's not just a concept 
that applies to this season or these holy days. All the holy days also celebrate and remind us of God's grace. His mercy, pardon, guidance, sustenance, an ongoing loving concern. Of course, when we prepare for the Passover each year through self-examination, we understand that it's difficult to get all of the sin and leaven out of our lives. We come face to face with God's grace. In short, it's hard to remember Christ's death and put sin out without noting God's grace. The same is true, of course, for all of God's holy days, since they represent his plan of salvation for all humanity. Now, we certainly established through some of the other verses about the remaining importance of the law and of uh, keeping God's law, even with this understanding of grace. I do find it interesting here in these verses we read in 1 Corinthians 5. Why would he tell us to purge out the old leaven if the law is of no value? Would make no sense. Grace and obedience clearly go hand in hand together. It's not one or the other. We obey because we have received grace and have been prepared for good works, as God intended. We have to understand grace properly to truly understand Paul's writings. I think one of the reasons so many misunderstand Paul is because they don't come from a law-keeping background. Paul was a former Pharisee who kept God's law meticulously prior to and after his conversion to Christianity. Authentic grace doesn't go away with keeping the commandments. Let's uh, turn now to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 16. We'll start to wrap up on this topic today. Hebrews 4, verse 16. It's the very last verse in this chapter. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we go through life, we all will need to come to God's throne of grace. And we will be in need of grace. We're supposed to find grace there. Based on this admonition, doesn't it make sense for us to understand what it is we're searching for. Doesn't it make sense for us to know the real, genuine, authentic grace spoken of in the Bible? To go back to the song, Amazing Grace, how was it that John Newton wrote lyrics that moved so many people? It seems to me that some people in the world, another 
places have a stronger appreciation for grace sometimes than some within the church of God. But the irony is that so many of them do not understand how God's true grace will change people's lives to be doers of the law, motivated doers of the law. We think of the hymn, How Love I Thy Law. It was a hymn that resonated deeply with many people in the Church of God at the time in the mid-90s, when many were coming out of the worldwide Church of God, the attacks on God's doctrine and law were there. And it speaks to that love of the law, right? It's not a burden, as some would say, but a motivated love. And it's a beautiful and excellent hymn. But we should also not overlook, set aside, or fail to also appreciate the riches of God's grace.